Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Part 2, Chapter 19 of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jeffreys. Part 2, Wild England, Chapter 19, Fighting. Twice Felix saw the king. Once there was a review of the horse outside the camp, and Felix, having to attend with his master's third charger, a mere show and affectation, for there was not the least chance of his needing it, was now and then very near the monarch. For that day at least he looked every whit what fame had reported him to be. A man of unusual size, his bulk rendered him conspicuous in the front of the throng. His massive head seemed to accord well with the possession of despotic power. The brow was a little bare, for he was no longer young, but the back of his head was covered with thick ringlets of brown hair, so thick as to partly conceal the coronet of gold which he wore. A short purple cloak, scarcely reaching to the waist, was thrown back off his shoulders, so that his steel corslet glistened in the sun. It was the only armour he had on. A long sword hung at his side. He rode a powerful black horse, full eighteen hands high, by far the finest animal on the ground. He required it, for his weight must have been great. Felix passed near enough to note that his eyes were brown, and the expression of his face open, frank, and pleasing. The impression left upon the observer was that of a strong intellect, but a still stronger physique, which latter too often ran away with and controlled the former. No one could look upon him without admiration, and it was difficult to think that he could so demean himself as to wallow in the grossest indulgence. As for the review, though it was a brilliant scene, Felix could not conceal from himself that these gallant knights were extremely irregular in their movements and not one single evolution was performed correctly, because they were constantly quarrelling about precedence, and one would not consent to follow the other. He soon understood, however, that discipline was not the object, nor regularity considered. Personal courage and personal dexterity were everything. This review was the prelude to active operations, and Felix now hoped to have some practical lessons in warfare. He was mistaken. Instead of a grand assault or a regular approach, the fighting was merely a series of combats between small detachments and bodies of the enemy. Two or three knights with their retainers and slaves would start forth, cross the stream, and riding right past the besieged city, endeavour to sack some small hamlet or the homestead of a noble. From the city a sortie would ensue. Sometimes the two bodies only threatened each other at a distance, the first retiring as the second advanced. Sometimes only a few arrows were discharged, 
Occasionally they came to blows, but the casualties were rarely heavy. One such party, while returning, was followed by a squadron of horsemen from the town towards the stream to within three hundred yards of the king's quarters. Incensed at this assurance, several knights mounted their horses and rode out to reinforce the returning detachment, which was loaded with booty. Finding themselves about to be supported, they threw down their spoils, faced about, and Felix saw, for the first time, a real and desperate melee. It was over in five minutes. The king's knights, far better horsed, and filled with desire to exhibit their valour to the camp, charged with such fury that they overthrew the enemy and rode over him. Felix saw the troops meet. There was a crash and cracking as the lances broke. Four or five rolled from the saddle on the trodden corn, and the next moment the entangled mass of men and horses unwound itself as the enemy hastened back to the walls. Felix was eager to join in such an affray, but he had no horse nor weapon. Upon another occasion, early one bright morning, four knights and their followers, about forty in all, deliberately set out from the camp, and advanced up the sloping ground towards the city. The camp was soon astir, watching their proceedings, and the king, being made acquainted with what was going on, came out from his booth. Felix, who now entered the circular entrenchment without any difficulty, got up on the mound with scores of others, where, holding to the stakes, they had a good view. The king stood on a bench and watched the troops advance, shading his eyes with his hand. As it was but half a mile to the walls, they could see all that took place. When the knights had got within two hundred yards, and arrows began to drop amongst them, they dismounted from their horses and left them in charge of the grooms, who walked them up and down, none remaining still a minute, so as to escape the aim of the enemy's archers. Then, drawing their swords, the knights, who were in full armour, put themselves at the head of the band, and advanced at a steady pace to the wall. In their mail, with their shields before them, they cared not for such feeble archery, nor even for the darts that poured upon them when they came within reach. There was no foss to the wall, so that, pushing forward, they were soon at the foot. So easily had they reached it, that Felix almost thought the city already won. Now he saw blocks of stone, darts and beams of wood cast at them from the parapet, which was not more than twelve feet above the ground. Quite undismayed, the knights set up their ladders, of which they had but four, one each. The men-at-arms held these by main force against the wall, the besiegers trying to throw them away, and chopping at the rungs with their axes. But the ladders were well shod with iron to resist such blows, and in a moment Felix saw, with intense delight and admiration, the four knights slowly mount to the parapet and cut at the defenders with their swords. The gleam of steel was distinctly visible as the blades rose and fell. The enemy thrust at them with pikes, but seemed to shrink from closer combat, and a moment afterwards the gallant four stood on the top of the wall. Their figures, clad in mail and shield in hand, were distinctly seen against the sky. Up swarmed the men-at-arms behind them, and some seemed to descend on the other side. 
A shout rose from the camp and echoed over the woods. Felix shouted with the rest, wild with excitement. The next minute, while yet the knight stood on the wall and scarcely seemed to know what to do next, there appeared at least a dozen men in armour running along the wall towards them. Felix afterwards understood that the ease with which the four won the wall at first was owing to there being no men of knightly rank among the defenders at that early hour. Those who had collected to repulse the assault were citizens, retainers, slaves, any, in fact, who had been near. But now the news had reached the enemy's leaders, and some of them hastened to the wall. As these were seen approaching, the camp was hushed, and every eye strained on the combatants. The noble four could not all meet their assailants. The wall was but wide enough for two to fight, but the other two had work enough the next minute, as eight or ten more men in mail advanced the other way. So they fought back to back, two facing one way and two the other. The swords rose and fell. Felix saw a flash of light fly up into the air. It was the point of a sword broken off short. At the foot of the wall, the men who had not had time to mount endeavoured to assist their masters by stabbing upwards with their spears. All at once two of the knights were hurled from the wall. One seemed to be caught by his men, the other came heavily to the ground. While they were fighting their immediate antagonists, others within the wall had come with lances and literally thrust them from the parapet. The other two still fought back to back for a moment, then, Finding themselves overwhelmed, they sprang down among their friends. The minute the two first fell, the grooms with the horses ran towards the wall, and despite the rain of arrows, darts, and stones from the parapet, Felix saw with relief three of the four knights placed on their chargers. One only could sit upright unassisted, two were supported in their saddles, and the fourth was carried by his retainers. Thus they retreated and apparently without further hurt, for the enemy on the wall crowded so much together as to interfere with the aim of their darts, which, too, soon fell short. But there was a dark heap beneath the wall, where ten or twelve retainers and slaves, who wore no armour, had been slain or disabled. Upon these the loss invariably fell. None attempted to follow the retreating party, who slowly returned towards the camp, and was soon apparently in safety. But suddenly a fresh party of the enemy appeared upon the wall, and the instant afterwards three retainers dropped, as if struck by lightning. They had been hit by sling-stones, whirled with great force by practised slingers. These rounded pebbles come with such impetus as to stun a man at two hundred yards. The aim, it is true, is uncertain, but where there is a body of troops they are sure to strike someone. Hastening on, leaving the three fallen men where they lay, the rest in two minutes were out of range, and came safely into camp. Everyone, as they crossed the stream, ran to meet them, the king included, and as he passed in the throng Felix heard him remark that they had had a capital main of cocks that morning. Of the knights only one was much injured. He had fallen upon a stone, and two ribs were broken. 
The rest suffered from severe bruises, but had no wound. Six men-at-arms were missing, probably prisoners, for, as courageous as their masters, they had leapt down from the wall into the town. Eleven other retainers or slaves were slain, or had deserted, or were prisoners, and no trouble was taken about them. As for the three who were knocked over by the sling-stones, there they lay until they recovered their senses, when they crawled into camp. This incident cooled Felix's ardour for the fray, for he reflected that, if injured thus, he too, as a mere groom, would be left. The devotion of the retainers to save and succour their masters was almost heroic. The mailed knights thought no more of their men, unless it was some particular favourite, than of a hound slashed by a boar's tusk in the chase. When the first flush of his excitement had passed, Felix, thinking over the scene of the morning as he took his horses down to water at the stream, became filled at first with contempt, and then with indignation. That the first commander of the age should thus look on, while the wall was won before his eyes, and yet never send a strong detachment, or move himself with his whole army to follow up the advantage, seemed past understanding. If he did not intend to follow it up, why permit such desperate ventures, which must be overwhelmed by mere numbers, and could result only in the loss of brave men? And if he did permit it, why did he not, when he saw they were overthrown, send a squadron to cover their retreat? To call such an exhibition of courage a mane of cocks, to look on it as a mere display for his amusement, was barbarous and cruel in the extreme. He worked himself up into a state of anger which rendered him less cautious than usual in expressing his opinions. The king was not nearly so much at fault as Felix, arguing on abstract principles, imagined. He had long experience of war, and he knew its extreme uncertainty. The issue of the greatest battle often hung on the conduct of a single leader, or even a single man-at-arms. He had seen walls won and lost before. To follow up such a venture with a strong detachment must result in one of two things. Either the detachment in its turn must be supported by the entire army, or it must eventually retreat. If it retreated, the loss of prestige would be serious, and might encourage the enemy to attack the camp, for it was only his prestige which prevented them. If supported by the entire army, then the fate of the whole expedition depended upon that single day. The enemy had the advantage of the wall, of the narrow streets and enclosures within, of the houses, each of which would become a fortress, and thus, in the winding streets, a repulse might easily happen. To risk such an event would be folly in the last degree, before the town had been dispirited and discouraged by the continuance of the siege, the failure of their provisions, or the fall of their chief leaders in the daily combats that took place. The army had no discipline whatever, beyond that of the attachment of the retainer to his lord, and the dread of punishment on the part of the slave. 
There were no distinct ranks, no organised corps. The knights followed the greater barons, the retainers the knights. The greater barons followed the king. Such an army could not be risked in an assault of this kind. The venture was not ordered, nor was it discouraged. To discourage, indeed, all attempts would have been bad policy. It was upon the courage and bravery of his knights that the king depended, and upon that alone rested his hopes of victory. The great baron whose standard they followed would have sent them assistance if he had deemed it necessary. The king, unless on the day of battle, would not trouble about such a detail. As for the remark that they had had a good mane of cocks that morning, he simply expressed the feeling of the whole camp. The spectacle Felix had seen was, in fact, merely an instance of the strength and of the weakness of the army and of the monarch himself. Felix afterwards acknowledged these things to himself, but at the moment, full of admiration for the bravery of the four knights and their followers, he was full of indignation, and uttered his views too freely. His fellow-grooms cautioned him, but his spirit was up, and he gave way to his feelings without restraint. Now, to laugh at the king's weaknesses, his gluttony or follies, was one thing. To criticise his military conduct was another. The one was merely badinage, and the king himself might have laughed had he heard it. The other was treason, and, moreover, likely to touch the monarch on the delicate matter of military reputation. Of this Felix quickly became aware. His mates indeed tried to shield him, but possibly the citizen, his master, had enemies in the camp, barons, perhaps, to whom he had lent money, and who watched for a chance of securing his downfall. At all events, early the next day, Felix was rudely arrested by the provost in person, bound with cords, and placed in the provost's booth. At the same time, his master was ordered to remain within, and a guard was put over him. End of Part 2 Chapter 19part 2 chapter 20 of after london this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by ruth golding after london by richard jefferies part 2 wild england chapter 20 in danger hope died within felix when he thus suddenly found himself so near the executioner he had known so many butchered without cause that he had, indeed, reason to despair. Towards the sunset he felt sure he should be dragged forth and hanged on the oak used for the purpose, and which stood near where the track from Aisi joined the camp. Such would most probably have been his fate had he been alone concerned in this affair, but by good fortune he was able to escape so miserable an end. Still, he suffered as much as if the rope had finished him, for he had no means of knowing what would be the result. His heart swelled with bitterness. He was filled with inexpressible indignation. His whole being rebelled against the blundering, as it were, of events which had thus thrown him into the jaws of death. 
In an hour or two, however, he sufficiently recovered from the shock to reflect that most probably they would give him some chance to speak for himself. There would not be any trial. Who would waste time in trying so insignificant a wretch? But there might be some opportunity of speaking, and he resolved to use it to the utmost possible extent. He would arraign the unskilful generalship of the king. He would not only point out his errors, but how the enemy could be defeated. He would prove that he had ideas and plans worthy of attention. He would, as it were, vindicate himself before he was executed, and he tried to collect his thoughts and put them into form. Every moment the face of Aurora seemed to look upon him lovingly and mournfully but beside it he saw the dusty and distorted features of the corpse he had seen drawn by the horse through the camp. Thus, too, his tongue would protrude and lick the dust. He endured, in a word, those treble agonies which the highly wrought and imaginative inflict upon themselves. The hours passed, and still no one came near him. He called, and the guard appeared at the door, but only to see what was the matter, and finding his prisoner safe, at once resumed his walk to and fro. The soldier did not, for his own sake, dare to enter into conversation with a prisoner under arrest for such an offence. He might be involved or suspected. Had it been merely theft or any ordinary crime, he would have talked freely enough and sympathised with the prisoner. As time went on, Felix grew thirsty, but his request for water was disregarded, and there he remained till four in the afternoon. They then marched him out. He begged to be allowed to speak, but the soldiery did not reply, simply hurrying him forward. He now feared that he should be executed without the chance being afforded him to say a word. But to his surprise, he found in a few minutes that they were taking him in the direction of the king's quarters. New fears now seized him, for he had heard of men being turned loose, made to run for their lives, and hunted down with hounds for the amusement of the court. If the citizen's wealth had made him many enemies, men whom he had befriended, and who hoped, if they could but see him executed, to escape the payment of their debts, on the other hand, it had made him as many friends, that is, interested friends, who trusted by doing him service to obtain advances. These latter had lost no time, for greed is quite as eager as hate, and carried the matter at once to the king. What they desired was that the case should be decided by the monarch himself, and not by his chancellor or a judge appointed for the purpose. The judge would be nearly certain to condemn the citizen, and to confiscate whatever he could lay hands on. The king might pardon, and would be content with a part only, where his ministers would grasp all. These friends succeeded in their object. The king, who hated all judicial affairs because they involved the trouble of investigation, shrugged his shoulders at the request, and would not have granted it had it not come out that the citizen's servant had declared him to be an incapable commander. At this the king started. "'We are indeed fallen low,' 
said he, when a miserable trader's knave calls us incapable, we will see this impudent rascal. He accordingly ordered that the prisoner should be brought before him after dinner. Felix was led inside the entrenchment, unbound, and commanded to stand upright. There was a considerable assembly of the greater barons anxious to see the trial of the money-lender, who, though present, was kept apart from Felix, lest the two should arrange their defence. The king was sleeping on a couch outside the booth in the shade. He was lying on his back, breathing loudly with open mouth. How different his appearance to the time when he sat on his splendid charger and reviewed his knights! A heavy meal had been succeeded by as heavy a slumber. No one dared to disturb him. The assembly moved on tiptoe and conversed in whispers. The experienced divined that the prisoners were certain to be condemned, for the king would wake with indigestion, and vent his uneasy sensations upon them. Full an hour elapsed before the king awoke with a snort, and called for a draught of water. How Felix envied that draught! He had neither eaten nor drunk since the night previous. It was a hot day, and his tongue was dry and parched. The citizen was first accused. He denied any treasonable designs or expressions whatever. As for the other prisoner, till the time he was arrested, he did not even know he had been in his service. He was some stroller, whom his grooms had incautiously engaged, the lazy scoundrels, to assist them. He had never even spoken to him. If the knave told the truth, he must acknowledge this. "'How now?' said the king, turning to Felix. "'What do you say?' "'It is true,' replied Felix. "'He has never spoken to me, nor I to him. "'He knew nothing of what I said. "'I said it on my own account, and I say it again.' "'And pray, Sir Knave,' said the king, sitting up on his couch, "'for he was surprised to hear one so meanly dressed.' speak so correctly, and so boldly face him. What was it you did say? If your majesty will order me a single drop of water, said the prisoner, I will repeat it word for word, but I have had nothing the whole day, and I can hardly move my tongue. Without a word, the king handed him the cup from which he had himself drunk. Never surely was water so delicious. Felix drained it to the bottom, handed it back, an officer took it, and with one brief thought of Aurora, he said, "'Your Majesty, you are an incapable commander.' "'Go on,' said the King sarcastically. "'Why am I incapable?' "'You have attacked the wrong city. These three are all your enemies, and you have attacked the first. They stand in a row.' "'They stand in a row,' repeated the king, "'and we will knock them over like three ninepins.' "'But you have begun with the end one,' said Felix, "'and that is the mistake. "'For after you have taken the first, "'you must take the second, "'and still after that the third. "'But you might have saved much trouble and time if—' "'If what?' 
if you had assaulted the middle one first, for then, while the siege went on, you would have been able to prevent either of the other two towns from sending assistance, and when you had taken the first and put your garrison in it, neither of the others could have stirred or reaped their corn, nor could they even communicate with each other, since you would be between them, and in fact you would have cut your enemies in twain. "'By St. John!' swore the king. "'It is a good idea. I begin to think—but go on, you have more to say.' "'I think, too, your majesty, that by staying here, as you have done this fortnight past, without action, you have encouraged the other two cities to make more desperate resistance, and it seems to me that you are in a dangerous position, and may at any moment be overwhelmed with disaster, for there is nothing whatever to prevent either of the other two from sending troops to burn the open city of Aisi in your absence. And that danger must increase every day, as they take courage by your idleness. Idleness! There shall be idleness no longer. The man speaks the truth. We will consider further of this. We will move on Adlington, turning to his barons. If it please your majesty, said Baron Ingulf, this man invented a new trigger for our carriage crossbows, but he was lost in the crowd, and we have sought for him in vain. My sergeant here has this moment recognised him. Why did you not come to us before, fellow? said the king. Let him be released. Let him be entertained at our expense. Give him clothes and a sword. We will see you further. Overjoyed at this sudden turn of fortune, Felix forgot to let well alone. He had his audience with him for a moment. He could not resist, as it were, following up his victory. He thanked the king, and added that he could make a machine which would knock the walls yonder to pieces, without it being necessary to approach nearer than half a bowshot. "'What is this?' said the king. "'Ingolf, have you ever heard of such a machine?' "'There is no such thing,' said the baron, beginning to feel that his professional reputation as the master of the artillery was assailed. "'There is nothing of the kind known.' "'It will shoot stones as big, as heavy as a man can lift,' said Felix eagerly, "'and easily knock towers to fragments.' The king looked from one to another. He was incredulous. The baron smiled scornfully. "'Ask him, your majesty, how these stones are to be thrown. No bow could do it.' "'How are the stones to be thrown?' said the king sharply. "'Beware how you play with us.' "'By the force of twisted ropes, your majesty.' They all laughed. The baron said, "'You see, your majesty, there is nothing of the kind. This is some jester.' "'The twisted rope should be a halter,' said another courtier one of those who hoped for the rich man's downfall. "'It can be done, your majesty,' cried Felix, alarmed. "'I assure you, a stone of two hundredweight might be thrown a quarter of a mile.' The assembly did not repress its contempt. "'The man is a fool,' said the king, who now thought that Felix was a jester who had put a trick upon him. "'But your joke is out of joint.' I will teach such fellows to try tricks on us. Beat him out of camp. The provost's men seized him, 
and in a moment he was dragged off his feet and bodily carried outside the entrenchment. Thence they pushed him along, beating him with the butts of their spears to make him run the faster. The groups they passed laughed and jeered, the dogs barked and snapped at his ankles. They hurried him outside the camp, and thrusting him savagely with their spear-butts, sent him headlong. There they left him, with the caution which he did not hear, being insensible, that if he ventured inside the lines he would be at once hanged. Like a dead dog they left him on the ground. Some hours later, in the dusk of the evening, Felix stole from the spot, skirting the forests like a wild animal afraid to venture from its cover, till he reached the track which led to Aisi. His one idea was to reach his canoe. He would have gone through the woods, but that was not possible. Without axe or wood-knife to hew away, the tangled brushwood he knew to be impassable, having observed how thick it was when coming. Aching and trembling in every limb, not so much with physical suffering as that kind of inward fever which follows unmerited injury, the revolt of the mind against it, he followed the track as fast as his weary frame would let him. He had tasted nothing that day but the draught from the king's cup, and a second draught when he recovered consciousness from the stream that flowed past the camp. Yet he walked steadily on without pause. His head hung forward, and his arms were listless, but his feet mechanically plodded on. He walked, indeed, by his will, and not with his sinews. Thus, like a ghost, for there was no life in him, he traversed the shadowy forest. The dawn came, and still he kept onwards. As the sun rose higher, having now travelled fully twenty miles, he saw houses on the right of the trail. They were evidently those of retainers or workmen employed on the manor, for a castle stood at some distance. An hour later he approached the second or open city of Aisi, where the ferry was across the channel. In his present condition he could not pass through the town. No one there knew of his disgrace, but it was the same to him as if they had. Avoiding the town itself, he crossed the cultivated fields, and upon arriving at the channel he at once stepped in and swam across to the opposite shore. It was not more than sixty yards, but weary as he was, it was an exhausting effort. He sat down, but immediately got up and struggled on. The church tower on the slope of the hill was a landmark by which he easily discovered the direction of the spot where he had hidden the canoe, but he felt unable to push through the belt of brushwood, reeds and flags beside the shore, and therefore struck through the firs, following a cattle track, which doubtless led to another grazing ground. This ran parallel with the shore, and when he judged himself about level with the canoe, he left it and entered the wood itself. For a little way he could walk, but the thick fir branches soon blocked his progress, and he could progress only on hands and knees, creeping beneath them. There was a hollow space under the lower branches, free from brushwood. Thus he painfully approached the lake, and descending the hill, after an hour's weary work, emerged among the rushes and reeds. He was within two hundred yards of the canoe, 
for he recognised the island opposite it. In ten minutes he found it undisturbed, and exactly as he had left it, except that the breeze had strewn the dry reeds with which it was covered with willow leaves, yellow and dead, they fall while all the rest are green, which had been whirled from the branches. Throwing himself upon the reeds beside the canoe, he dropped asleep as if he had been dead. He awoke as the sun was sinking, and sat up, hungry in the extreme, but much refreshed. There were still some stores in the canoe, of which he ate ravenously. But he felt better now. He felt at home beside his boat. He could hardly believe in the reality of the hideous dream through which he had passed. But when he tried to stand, his feet, cut and blistered, only too painfully assured him of its reality. He took out his hunter's hide and cloak, and spread himself a comfortable bed. Though he had slept so long, he was still weary. He reclined in a semi-unconscious state, his frame slowly recovering from the strain it had endured, till by degrees he fell asleep again. Sleep, nothing but sleep, restores the overtaxed mind and body. End of Part 2, Chapter 20Part 2, Chapter 21 of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London, or Wild England, by Richard Jeffreys. Part 2, Wild England, Chapter 21, A Voyage. The sun was up when Felix awoke, and as he raised himself the beauty of the lake before him filled him with pleasure. By the shore it was so calm that the trees were perfectly reflected, and the few willow leaves that had fallen floated without drifting one way or the other. Farther out the islands were lit up with the sunlight, and the swallows skimmed the water, following the outline of their shores. In the lake beyond them, glimpses of which he could see through the channel or passage between, there was a ripple where the faint southwestern breeze touched the surface. His mind went out to the beauty of it. He did not question or analyse his feelings. He launched his vessel, and left that hard and tyrannical land for the loveliness of the water. Paddling out to the islands, he passed through between them and reached the open lake. There he hoisted the sail, the gentle breeze filled it, the sharp cut-water began to divide the ripples, a bubbling sound arose, and steering due north, straight out to the open and boundless expanse, he was carried swiftly away. The mallards, who saw the canoe coming, at first scarcely moved, never thinking that a boat would venture outside the islands, within whose line they were accustomed to see vessels, but when the canoe continued to bear down upon them, they flew up and descended far away to one side. When he had sailed past the spot where these birds had floated, the lake was his own. By the shores of the islands the crows came down for mussels. Moorhens swam in and out among the rushes. Water-rats nibbled at the flags, pikes basked at the edge of the weeds, 
summer snipes ran along the sand, and doubtless an otter here and there was in concealment. Without the line of the shoals and islets, now that the mallards had flown, there was a solitude of water. It was far too deep for the longest weeds, nothing seemed to exist here. The very water-snails seek the shore, or are drifted by the currents into shallow corners. Neither great nor little care for the broad expanse. The canoe moved more rapidly as the wind came now with its full force over the distant woods and hills, and though it was but a light southerly breeze, the broad sail impelled the taper vessel swiftly. Reclining in the stern, Felix lost all consciousness of aught but that he was pleasantly borne along. His eyes were not closed, and he was aware of the canoe, the lake, the sunshine, and the sky, and yet he was asleep. Physically awake, he mentally slumbered. It was rest. After the misery, exertion, and excitement of the last fortnight, it was rest. Intense rest for body and mind. The pressure of the water against the handle of the rudder paddle, the slight vibration of the wood as the bubbles rushed by beneath, alone, perhaps, kept him from really falling asleep. This was something which could not be left to itself, it must be firmly grasped, and that effort restrained his drowsiness. Three hours passed. The shore was twelve or fifteen miles behind, and looked like a blue cloud, for the summer haze hid the hills more than would have been the case in clearer weather. Another hour, and at last Felix, awakening from his slumberous condition, looked round and saw nothing but the waves. The shore he had left had entirely disappeared, gone down. If there were land more lofty on either hand, the haze concealed it. He looked again. He could scarcely comprehend it. He knew the lake was very wide, but it had never occurred to him that he might possibly sail out of sight of land. This, then, was why the mariners would not quit the islands. They feared the open water. He stood up and swept the horizon carefully, shading his eyes with his hand. There was nothing but a mist at the horizon. He was alone with the sun, the sky, and the lake. He could not surely have sailed into the ocean without knowing it. He sat down, dipped his hand overboard, and tasted the drops that adhered. The water was pure and sweet, warm from the summer sunshine. There was not so much as a swift in the upper sky, nothing but slender filaments of white cloud. No swallows glided over the surface of the water. If there were fishes, he could not see them through the waves, which were here much larger, sufficiently large, though the wind was light, to make his canoe rise and fall with their regular rolling. To see fishes a calm surface is necessary, and, like other creatures, they haunt the shallows and the shore. Never had he felt alone like this, in the depths of the farthest forest he had penetrated. Had he contemplated beforehand the possibility of passing out of sight of land, when he found that the canoe had arrived, he would probably have been alarmed and anxious for his safety. 
but thus stumbling drowsily into the solitude of the vast lake, he was so astounded with his own discovery, so absorbed in thinking of the immense expanse, that the idea of danger did not occur to him. Another hour passed, and he now began to gaze about him more eagerly for some sight of land, for he had very little provision with him, and he did not wish to spend the night upon the lake. Presently, however, the mist on the horizon ahead appeared to thicken, and then became blue, and in a shorter time than he expected, land came in sight. This arose from the fact of its being low, so that he had approached nearer than he knew before recognising it. At the time when he was really out of sight of the coast, he was much further from the hilly land left behind than from the low country in front, and not in the mathematical centre, as he had supposed, of the lake. As it rose and came more into sight, he already began to wonder what reception he should meet with from the inhabitants, and whether he should find them as hard of heart as the people he had just escaped from. Should he, indeed, venture among them at all, or should he remain in the woods till he had observed more of their ways and manners? These questions were being debated in his mind when he perceived that the wind was falling. As the sun went past the meridian, the breeze fell, till, in the hottest part of the afternoon, and when he judged that he was not more than eight miles from shore, it sank to the merest zephyr, and the waves by degrees diminished. So faint became the breeze in half an hour's time, and so intermittent, that he found it patience wasted even to hold the rudder-paddle. The sail hung, and was no longer bellied out. As the idle waves rolled under, it flapped against the mast. The heat was now so intolerable, the light reflected from the water increasing the sensation, that he was obliged to make himself some shelter by partly lowering the sail and hauling the yard athwart the vessel, so that the canvas acted as an awning. Gradually the waves declined in volume, and the gentle breathing of the wind ebbed away, till at last the surface was almost still, and he could feel no perceptible air stirring. Weary of sitting in the narrow boat, he stood up, but he could not stretch himself sufficiently for the change to be of much use. The long summer day, previously so pleasant, now appeared scarcely endurable. Upon the silent water the time lingered, for there was nothing to mark its advance, not so much as a shadow beyond that of his own boat. The waves, having now no crest, went under the canoe without chafing against it or rebounding, so that they were noiseless. No fishes rose to the surface. There was nothing living near except a blue butterfly which settled on the mast, having ventured thus far from land. The vastness of the sky overarching the broad water, the sun and the motionless filaments of cloud, gave no repose for his gaze, for they were seemingly still. To the weary gaze motion is repose. The waving boughs, the foam-tipped waves, afford positive rest to look at. Such intense stillness as this of the summer sky was oppressive. 
It was like living in space itself, in the ether above. He welcomed at last the gradual downward direction of the sun, for, as the heat decreased, he could work with the paddle. Presently he furled the sail, took his paddle, and set his face for the land. He laboured steadily, but made no apparent progress. The canoe was heavy, and the outrigger or beam, which was of material use in sailing, was a drawback to paddling. He worked till his arms grew weary, and still the blue land seemed as far off as ever. But by the time the sun began to approach the horizon, his efforts had produced some effect. The shore was visible, and the woods beyond. They were still five miles distant, and he was tired. There was little chance of his reaching it before night. He put his paddle down for refreshment and rest, and while he was thus engaged a change took place. A faint puff of air came, a second and a third. A tiny ripple ran along the surface. Now he recollected that he had heard that the mariners depended a great deal on the morning and the evening, the land and the lake, breeze, as they worked along the shore. This was the first breath of the land breeze. It freshened after a while, and he reset his sail. An hour or so afterwards he came near the shore. He heard the thrushes singing and the cuckoo calling long before he landed. He did not stay to search about for a creek, but ran the canoe on the strand, which was free of reeds or flags, a sign that the waves often beat furiously there, rolling as they must for so many miles. He hauled the canoe up as high as he could, but presently, when he looked about him, he found that he was on a small and narrow island with a channel in the rear. Tired as he was, yet anxious for the safety of his canoe, he pushed off again and paddled round and again beached her with the island between her and the open lake. Elsie feared if a south wind should blow she might be broken to pieces on the strand before his eyes. It was prudent to take the precaution, but as it happened the next day the lake was still. He could see no traces of human occupation upon the island, which was of small extent and nearly bare, and therefore in the morning paddled across the channel to the mainland, as he thought. But upon exploring the opposite shore, it proved not to be the mainland, but merely another island. Paddling round it, he tried again, but with the same result. He found nothing but island after island, all narrow, and bearing nothing except bushes. Observing a channel which seemed to go straight in among these islets, he resolved to follow it, and did so, resting at noontime, the whole morning. As he paddled slowly in, he found the water shallower, and weeds, bulrushes, and reeds became thick, except quite in the centre. After the heat of midday had gone over, he resumed his voyage, and still found the same. Islets and banks, more or less covered with hawthorn bushes, willow, elder, and alder, succeeded to islets fringed round their edges with reeds and reed canary grass. When he grew weary of paddling, he landed and stayed the night. The next day he went on again, and still, for hour after hour, rode in and out among these banks and islets till he began to think he should never find his way out. 
The farther he penetrated, the more numerous became the waterfowl. Ducks swam among the flags, or rose with a rush and splashing. Coots and moorhens dived and hid in the reeds. The lesser grebe sank at the sound of the paddle like a stone. A strong northern diver raised a wave as he hurried away under the water, his course marked by the undulation above him. Sedge-birds chirped in the willows. Black-headed buntings sat on the trees and watched him without fear. Bearded titmice were there, clinging to the stalks of the sedges, and long-necked herons rose from the reedy places where they loved to wade. Blue dragonflies darted to and fro, or sat on water-plants, as if they were flowers. Snakes swam across the channels, vibrating their heads from side to side. Swallows swept over his head. Pikes struck from the verge of the thick weeds as he came near. Perch rose for insects as they fell helpless into the water. He noticed that the water, though so thick with reeds, was as clear as that in the open lake. There was no scum such as accumulates in stagnant places. From this he concluded that there must be a current, however slight, perhaps from rivers flowing into this part of the lake. He felt the strongest desire to explore farther till he reached the mainland, but he reflected that mere exploration was not his object. It would never obtain aurora for him. There were no signs whatever of human habitation, and from reeds and bulrushes, however interesting, nothing could be gained. Reluctantly, therefore, on the third morning, having passed the night on one of the islets, he turned his canoe and paddled southwards towards the lake. He did not for a moment attempt to retrace the channel by which he had entered. It would have been an impossibility. He took advantage of any clear space to push through. It took him as long to get out as it had to get in. It was the afternoon of the fourth day when he at last regained the coast. He rested the remainder of the afternoon, wishing to start fresh in the morning, having determined to follow the line of the shore eastwards, and so gradually to circumnavigate the lake. If he succeeded in nothing else, that at least would be something to relate to Aurora. The morning rose fair and bright, with a south-westerly air rather than a breeze. He sailed before it. It was so light that his progress could not have exceeded more than three miles an hour. Hour after hour passed away, and still he followed the line of the shore, now going a short way out to skirt an island, and now nearer it to pass between sandbanks. By noon he was so weary of sitting in the canoe that he ran her ashore and rested a while. It was the very height of the heat of the day when he set forth again, and the wind lighter than in the morning. It had, however, changed a little, and blew now from the west, almost too exactly abaft to suit his craft. He could not make a map while sailing, or observe his position accurately, but it appeared to him that the shore trended towards the south-east, so that he was gradually turning an arc. He supposed from this that he must be approaching the eastern end of the lake. The water seemed shallower, to judge from the quantity of weeds. Now and then he caught glimpses between the numerous islands of the open lake, and there, too, 
the weeds covered the surface in many places. In an hour or two the breeze increased considerably, and travelling so much quicker, he found it required all his dexterity to steer past the islands and clear the banks upon which he was drifting. Once or twice he grazed the willows that overhung the water, and heard the keel of the canoe drag on the bottom. As much as possible he bore away from the mainland, steering south-east, thinking to find deeper water, and to be free of the islets. He succeeded in the first, but the islets were now so numerous that he could not tell where the open lake was. The farther the afternoon advanced, the more the breeze freshened, till occasionally, as it blew between the islands, it struck his mast almost with the force of a gale. Felix welcomed the wind, which would enable him to make great progress before evening. If such favouring breezes would continue, he could circumnavigate the waters in a comparatively short time, and might return to Aurora, so far at least successful. Hope filled his heart, and he sang to the wind. The waves could not rise among these islands, which intercepted them before they could roll far enough to gather force so that he had all the advantage of the gale, without its risks. Except a light haze all round the horizon, the sky was perfectly clear, and it was pleasant now the strong current of air cooled the sun's heat. As he came round the islands, he constantly met and disturbed parties of waterfowl, mallards and coots. Sometimes they merely hid in the weeds, sometimes they rose, and when they did so, passed to his rear. End of Part 2, Chapter 21《Part 2, Chapter 22 of After London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. After London or Wild England by Richard Jeffreys. Part 2, Wild England, Chapter 22, Discoveries. This little circumstance of the mallards always flying over him and away behind when flushed, presently made Felix speculate on the cause, and he kept a closer watch. He now saw, what had indeed been going on for some time, that there was a ceaseless stream of waterfowl, mallards, ducks, coots, moorhens, and lesser grebes, coming towards him, swimming to the westward. As they met him, they parted and let him through, or rose and went over. Next, he noticed that the small birds on the islands were also travelling in the same direction, that is, against the wind. They did not seem in any haste, but flitted from islet to islet, bush to tree, feeding and gossiping as they went. Still, the movement was distinct. Finches, linnets, blackbirds— thrushes, wrens, and white-throats, and many others, all passed him, and he could see the same thing going on to his right and left. Felix became much interested in this migration, all the more singular as it was the nesting time, and hundreds of these birds must have left their nests with eggs or young behind them. Nothing that he could think of offered an adequate explanation— he imagined he saw shoals of fishes going the same way, but the surface of the water being ruffled, and the canoe sailing rapidly, he could not be certain. 
About an hour after he first observed the migration, the stream of birds ceased suddenly. There were no waterfowls in the water, and no finches in the bushes. They had evidently all passed. Those in the van of the migratory army were no doubt scattered and thinly distributed, so that he had been meeting the flocks a long while before he suspected it. The nearer he approached their centre, the thicker they became, and on getting through that he found a solitude. The weeds were thicker than ever, so that he had constantly to edge away from where he supposed the mainland to lie, but there were no waterfowls and no birds on the islets. Suddenly, as he rounded a large island, he saw what for the moment he imagined to be a line of white surf, but the next instant he recognised a solid mass, as it were, of swallows and martins flying just over the surface of the water, straight towards him. He had no time to notice how far they extended before they had gone by him with a rushing sound. Turning to look back, he saw them continue directly west in the teeth of the wind. Like the water and the islands, the sky was now cleared of birds, and not a swallow remained. Felix asked himself if he were running into some unknown danger, but he could not conceive any. The only thing that occurred to him was the possibility of the wind rising to a hurricane. That gave him no alarm, because the numerous islands would afford shelter. So complete was the shelter in some places, that as he passed along his sail drew above, while the surface of the water, almost surrounded with bushes and willows, was smooth. No matter to how many quarters of the compass the wind might veer, he should still be able to get under the lee of one or other of the banks. The sky remained without clouds, there was nothing but a slight haze, which he sometimes fancied looked thicker in front or to the eastward. There was nothing whatever to cause the least uneasiness. On the contrary, his curiosity was aroused, and he was desirous of discovering what it was that had startled the birds. After a while, the water became rather more open, with sandbanks instead of islands, so that he could see around him for a considerable distance. By a large bank, behind which the ripple was stilled, he saw a low wave advancing towards him, and moving against the wind. It was followed by two others at short intervals, and though he could not see them, he had no doubt shoals of fishes were passing, and had raised the undulations. The sedges on the sandbanks appeared brown and withered, as if it had been autumn instead of early summer. The flags were brown at the tip, and the aquatic grasses had dwindled. They looked as if they could not grow, and had reached but half their natural height. From the low willows the leaves were dropping faded and yellow, and the thorn-bushes were shrivelled and covered with the white cocoons of caterpillars. The farther he sailed, the more desolate the banks seemed, and trees ceased altogether. Even the willows were fewer and stunted, and the highest thorn-bush was not above his chest. His vessel was now more exposed to the wind, so that he drove past the banks and scattered islands rapidly, and he noticed that there was not so much as a crow on them. Upturned mussel-shells glittering in the sunshine showed where crows had been at work, but there was not one now visible. 
Felix thought that the water had lost its clearness and had become thick, which he put down to the action of the wavelets disturbing the sand in the shallows. Ahead, the haze or mist was now much thicker, and was apparently not over a mile distant. It hid the islands and concealed everything. He expected to enter it immediately, but it receded as he approached. Along the strand of an island he passed, there was a dark line, like a stain, and in still water under the lee the surface was covered with a floating scum. Felix, on seeing this, at once concluded that he had unknowingly entered a gulf, and had left the main lake, for the only place he had ever seen scum before was at the extremity of a creek near home, where the water was partly stagnant on a marshy level. The water of the lake was proverbial for its purity and clearness. He kept, therefore, a sharp lookout, expecting every moment to sight the end of the gulf or creek in which he supposed himself sailing, so that he might be ready to lower his sail. By degrees the wind had risen, till it now blew with fury, but the numerous sand-flats so broke up the waves that he found no inconvenience from them. One solitary gull passed over at a great height, flying steadily westwards against the wind. The canoe now began to overtake fragments of scum drifting before the wind, and rising up and down on the ripples. Once he saw a broad piece rise to the surface, together with a quantity of bubbles. None of the sandbanks now rose more than a foot or so above the surface, and were entirely bare mere sand and gravel. The mist ahead was sensibly nearer, and yet it eluded him. It was of a faint yellow, and though so thin, obscured everything where it hovered. From out of the mist there presently appeared a vast stretch of weeds. They floated on the surface and undulated to the wavelets, a pale yellowish-green expanse. Felix was hesitating whether to lower his sail or attempt to drive over them, when, as he advanced and the mist retreated, he saw open water beyond. The weeds extended on either hand as far as he could see, but they were only a narrow band, and he hesitated no longer. He felt the canoe graze the bottom once as he sailed over the weeds. The water was free of sandbanks beyond them, but he could see large islands looming in several directions. Glancing behind him, he perceived that the faint yellow mist had closed in, and now encircled him. It came within two or three hundred yards, and was not affected by the wind, rough as it was. Quite suddenly he noticed that the water on which the canoe floated was black. The wavelets which rolled alongside were black and the slight spray that occasionally flew on board was black, and stained the side of the vessel. This greatly astonished and almost shocked him. It was so opposite and contrary to all his ideas about the lake, the very mirror of purity. He leant over, and dipped up a little in the palm of his hand. It did not appear black in such a small quantity. It seemed a rusty brown, but he became aware of an offensive odour. The odour clung to his hand, and he could not remove it, to his great disgust. It was like nothing he had ever smelt before, 
and not in the least like the vapour of marshes. By now, being some distance from any island, the wavelets increased in size, and spray flew on board, wetting everything with this black liquid. Instead of level marshes and the end of the gulf, it appeared as if the water were deep, and also as if it widened. Exposed to the full press of the gale, Felix began to fear that he should not be able to return very easily against it. He did not know what to do. The horrid blackness of the water disposed him to turn about and tack out. On the other hand, having set out on a voyage of discovery, and having now found something different to the other parts of the lake, he did not like to retreat. He sailed on, thinking to presently pass these loathsome waters. He was now hungry, and indeed thirsty, but was unable to drink because he had no water-barrel. No vessel sailing on the lake ever carried a water-barrel, since such pure water was always under their bows. He was cramped, too, with long sitting in the canoe, and the sun was perceptibly sloping in the west. He determined to land and rest, and with this purpose steered to the right under the lee of a large island, so large, indeed, that he was not certain it was not part of the mainland or one side of the gulf. The water was very deep close up to the shore, but to his annoyance the strand appeared black, as if soaked with the dark water. He skirted along somewhat farther, and found a ledge of low rocks stretching out into the lake, so that he was obliged to run ashore before coming to these. On landing, the black strand, to his relief, was fairly firm, for he had dreaded sinking to the knees in it, but its appearance was so unpleasant that he could not bring himself to sit down. He walked on towards the ledge of rocks, thinking to find a pleasanter place there. They were stratified, and he stepped on them to climb up, when his foot went deep into the apparently hard rock. He kicked it, and his shoe penetrated it, as if it had been soft sand. It was impossible to climb up the reef. The ground rose inland, and, curious to see around him as far as possible, he ascended the slope. From the summit, however, he could not see farther than on the shore, for the pale yellow mist rose up round him and hid the canoe on the strand. The extreme desolation of the dark and barren ground repelled him. There was not a tree, bush, or living creature, not so much as a buzzing fly. He turned to go down, and then, for the first time, noticed that the disk of the sun was surrounded with a faint blue rim, apparently caused by the yellow vapour. So much were the rays shorn of their glare that he could now look at the sun without any distress, but its heat seemed to have increased though it was now late in the afternoon. Descending towards the canoe, he fancied the wind had veered considerably. He sat down in the boat and took some food. It was without relish, as he had nothing to drink, and the great heat had tired him. Wearily, and without thinking, he pushed off the canoe. She slowly floated out, when, as he was about to hoist up the sail, a tremendous gust of wind struck him down on the thwarts, and nearly carried him overboard. He caught the mast as he fell, 
or over he must have gone into the black waves. Before he could recover himself, she drifted against the ledge of rocks, which broke down and sank before the bow, so that she passed over uninjured. Felix got out a paddle, and directed the canoe as well as he could. The fury of the wind was irresistible, and he could only drive before it. In a few minutes, as he was swept along the shore, he was carried between it and another immense reef. Here, the waves being broken and less powerful, he contrived to get the heavy canoe ashore again, and, jumping out, dragged her up as far as he could on the land. When he had done this, he found to his surprise that the gale had ceased. The tremendous burst of wind had been succeeded by a perfect calm, and the waves had already lost their violent impetus. This was a relief, for he had feared that the canoe would be utterly broken to pieces. But soon he began to doubt if it were an unmixed benefit, as without a wind he could not move from this dismal place that evening. He was too weary to paddle far. He sat on the canoe to rest himself, and whether from fatigue or other causes, fell asleep. His head heavily dropping on his chest, partly woke him several times, but his lassitude overcame the discomfort, and he slept on. When he got up he felt dazed and unrefreshed, as if sleeping had been hard work. He was extremely thirsty, and oppressed with the increasing heat. The sun had sunk, or rather was so low that the high ground hid it from sight. End of Part 2 Chapter 22《ト Chapter 23 of After London。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding。After London or Wild England by Richard Jefferies。Part Two Wild England。Chapter 23 Strange Things。The thought struck Felix that perhaps he might find a spring somewhere in the island, and he started at once up over the hill. At the top he paused. The sun had not sunk, but had disappeared as a disk. In its place was a billow of blood, for so it looked, a vast, upheaved billow of glowing blood surging on the horizon. Over it flickered a tint of palest blue, like that seen in fire. The black waters reflected the glow, and the yellow vapour around was suffused with it. Though momentarily startled, Felix did not much heed these appearances, he was still dazed and heavy from his sleep. He went on looking for a spring, sometimes walking on firm ground, sometimes sinking to the ankle in a friable soil like black sand. The ground looked indeed as if it had been burnt, but there were no charred stumps of timber such as he had seen on the sites of forest fires. The extreme dreariness seemed to oppress his spirits, and he went on and on in a heavy, waking dream. Descending into a plain, he lost sight of the flaming sunset and the black waters. In the level plain the desolation was yet more marked. There was not a grass-blade or plant. The surface was hard, black, and burned, resembling iron. 
and indeed in places it resounded to his feet, though he supposed that was the echo from hollow passages beneath. Several times he shook himself, straightened himself up, and endeavoured to throw off the sense of drowsy weight which increased upon him. He could not do so. He walked with bent back, and crept, as it were, over the iron land which radiated heat. A shimmer like that of water appeared in front. He quickened his pace, but could not get to it, and realised presently that it was a mirage which receded as he advanced. There was no pleasant summer twilight. The sunset was succeeded by an indefinite gloom, and while this shadow hung overhead, the yellow vapour around was faintly radiant. Felix suddenly stopped, having stepped, as he thought, on a skeleton. Another glance, however, showed that it was merely the impression of one. The actual bones had long since disappeared. The ribs, the skull, and limbs were drawn on the black ground in white lines, as if it had been done with a broad piece of chalk. Close by he found three or four more, intertangled and superimposed, as if the unhappy beings had fallen partly across each other, and in that position had mouldered away, leaving nothing but their outline. From among the variety of objects that were scattered about, Felix picked up something that shone. It was a diamond bracelet of one large stone, and a small square of blue china tile, with a curious heraldic animal drawn on it. Evidently these had belonged to one or other of the party who had perished. Though startled at the first sight, it was curious that Felix felt so little horror. The idea did not occur to him that he was in danger as these had been. Inhaling the gaseous emanations from the soil and contained in the yellow vapour, he had become narcotized and moved as if under the influence of opium, while wide awake and capable of rational conduct. His senses were deadened, and did not carry the usual vivid impression to the mind. He saw things as if they were afar off. Accidentally looking back, he found that his footmarks, as far as he could see, shone with a phosphoric light, like that of touchwood, in the dark. Near at hand they did not shine, the appearance did not come till some few minutes had elapsed. His track was visible behind till the vapour hid it. As the evening drew on, the vapour became more luminous, and somewhat resembled an aurora. Still anxious for water, he proceeded as straight ahead as he could, and shortly became conscious of an indefinite cloud which kept pace with him on either side. When he turned to look at either of the clouds, the one looked at disappeared. It was not condensed enough to be visible to direct vision, yet he was aware of it from the corner of his eye. Shapeless and threatening, the gloomy thickness of the air floated beside him like the vague monster of a dream. Sometimes he fancied that he saw an arm or a limb among the folds of the cloud, or an approach to a face. The instant he looked it vanished. Marching at each hand, these vapours bore him horrible company. 
His brain became unsteady, and flickering things moved about him. Yet, though alarmed, he was not afraid. His senses were not acute enough for fear. The heat increased. His hands were intolerably hot, as if he had been in a fever. He panted, but did not perspire. A dry heat, like an oven, burned his blood in his veins. His head felt enlarged, and his eyes seemed alight. He could see these two globes of phosphoric light under his brows. They seemed to stand out so that he could see them. He thought his path straight. It was really curved. Nor did he know that he staggered as he walked. Presently a white object appeared ahead, and on coming to it he found it was a wall, white as snow, with some kind of crystal. He touched it when the wall fell immediately with a crushing sound as if pulverised, and disappeared in a vast cavern at his feet. Beyond this chasm he came to more walls like those of houses, such as would be left if the roofs fell in. He carefully avoided touching them, for they seemed as brittle as glass, and merely a white powder, having no consistency at all. As he advanced, these remnants of buildings increased in number, so that he had to wind in and out round them. In some places the crystallised wall had fallen of itself, and he could see down into the cavern, for the house had either been built partly underground, or, which was more probable, the ground had risen. Whether the walls had been of bricks or stone or other material, he could not tell. They were now like salt. Soon wearying of winding round these walls, Felix returned and traced his steps till he was outside the place, and then went on towards the left. Not long after, as he still walked in a dream and without feeling his feet, he descended a slight slope, and found the ground change in colour from black to a dull red. In his dazed state he had taken several steps into this red before he noticed that it was liquid, unctuous and slimy, like a thick oil. It deepened rapidly and was already over his shoes. He returned to the black shore, and stood looking out over the water, if such it could be called. The luminous yellow vapour had now risen a height of ten or fifteen feet, and formed a roof both over the land and over the red water, under which it was possible to see for a great distance. The surface of the red oil or viscid liquid was perfectly smooth, and, indeed, it did not seem as if any wind could rouse a wave on it, much less that a swell should be left after the gale had gone down. Disappointed in his search for water to drink, Felix mechanically turned to go back. He followed his luminous footmarks, which he could see a long way before him. His trail curved so much that he made many shortcuts across the winding line he had left. His weariness was now so intense that all feeling had departed. His feet, his limbs, his arms and hands were numbed. The subtle poison of the emanations from the earth had begun to deaden his nerves. 
It seemed a full hour or more to him till he reached the spot where the skeletons were drawn in white upon the ground. He passed a few yards to one side of them, and stumbled over a heap of something which he did not observe, as it was black like the level ground. It emitted a metallic sound, and looking, he saw that he had kicked his foot against a great heap of money. The coins were black as ink. He picked up a handful and went on. Hitherto Felix had accepted all that he saw as something so strange as to be unaccountable. During his advance into this region in the canoe he had, in fact, become slowly stupefied by the poisonous vapour he had inhaled. His mind was partly in abeyance. It acted, but only after some time had elapsed. He now at last began to realise his position. The finding of the heap of blackened money touched a cord of memory. These skeletons were the miserable relics of men who had ventured in search of ancient treasures into the deadly marshes over the site of the mightiest city of former days. The deserted and utterly extinct city of London was under his feet. He had penetrated into the midst of that dreadful place of which he had heard many a tradition. How the earth was poison, the water poison, the air poison, the very light of heaven falling through such an atmosphere, poison. There were said to be places where the earth was on fire and belched forth sulphurous fumes supposed to be from the combustion of the enormous stores of strange and unknown chemicals collected by the wonderful people of those times. Upon the surface of the water there was a greenish-yellow oil, to touch which was death to any creature. It was the very essence of corruption. Sometimes it floated before the wind, and fragments became attached to reeds or flags far from the place itself. If a moorhen or duck chanced to rub the reed, and but one drop stuck to its feathers, it forthwith died. Of the red water he had not heard, nor of the black, into which he had unwittingly sailed. Ghastly beings haunted the sight of so many crimes. Shapeless monsters hovering by night, and weaving a fearful dance. Frequently they caught fire, as it seemed, and burned as they flew or floated in the air. Remembering these stories, which in part at least now seemed to be true, Felix glanced aside, where the cloud still kept pace with him, and involuntarily put his hands to his ears, lest the darkness of the air should whisper some horror of old times. The earth on which he walked, the black earth, leaving phosphoric footmarks behind him, was composed of the moulded bodies of millions of men who had passed away in the centuries during which the city existed. He shuddered as he moved, he hastened, yet could not go fast, his numbed limbs would not permit him. 
He dreaded lest he should fall and sleep and wake no more, like the searchers after treasure, treasure which they had found only to lose for ever. He looked around, supposing that he might see the gleaming head and shoulders of the half-buried giant of which he recollected he had been told. The giant was punished for some crime by being buried to the chest in the earth. Fire incessantly consumed his head and played about it, yet it was not destroyed. The learned thought, if such a thing really existed, that it must be the upper part of an ancient brazen statue, kept bright by the action of acid in the atmosphere and shining with reflected light. Felix did not see it, and shortly afterwards surmounted the hill and looked down upon his canoe. It was on fire. End of part two, chapter twenty three. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.